Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. So, can you feel it, Cass? That nip, (laughs) that frosty bite, that Arctic chill in the air? I can, April. It's spring outside, but I am freezing. Yes, because this just might be our coolest episode yet pun fully intended there, because as you have already guessed, winter is coming. (laughs) But dread not, listeners, I think this episode will actually be a delight. Um, Several of you have asked for an episode on the Game of Thrones costumes ever since we started the podcast three years ago. And alas, as I am such a huge fan, I just wanted to make sure that I had the time to devote to this, to make sure that we got it right. And some might say that I've had a little bit of extra time on my hands lately. (laughs) And April, as you already know, we are also huge Game of Thrones fans here at the Zachary Garcia household from the very first season. Sean and I have been in awe of the creations of costume designer Michelle Clapton and her team. As some of our listeners probably recall, I've worked as a costumer and designer in film for the past 12 years, and you would not believe the incredible amount of work that goes into this entire process of each and every costume on this show, from the design process to creation to getting it in front of the camera and then maintaining it for possibly an entire season of shooting, which I think is anywhere from six months to a year. I'm constantly in awe of the thought, craftsmanship, and sheer dedication that went into creating what is arguably the most elaborate fantasy world ever to grace a screen, whether that be for film or television. Or maybe we should even say worlds plural, because from Essos to Westeros, from Dorne to King's Landing and the North, each of these fictional lands have their own unique style, which is born out of their history, culture, and climate. So whether that applies to the architecture of their surroundings or the materiality, color, and symbolism of their clothing, the Game of Thrones world is so immersive and meticulously crafted that it's easy to just kind of fall into the story and suspend your disbelief that this wasn't actually real all along. (laughs) Uh, You know, I mean, it always just felt so, so authentic. And that is thanks in part to all of the backstory that informed each and every creative decision that, that applies to sets, that applies to costumes, and, you know, various things otherwise. And as Michelle Clapton, the costume designer for seven of the eight seasons of Game of Thrones has noted, she says, quote, from the start, showrunners David Denehoff and D.B. Weiss felt that the series should not feel too fantastical. So early on, we decided that there should be a logical reason behind every decision. Yes, and today we will highlight some of those decisions, looking into the nuances and costuming that, you know, we might not all have picked up on when we were watching it. And the GOT costumes are chock full of symbolism and foreshadowing inherent to each character's unique story arc. Rage, joy, revenge, and familial loyalties and fealties are all lovingly stitched into the clothing they wear. 
And this is the part where before we go any further that I have to issue a major spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. (laughs) (laughs) Because if you have not seen Game of Thrones in its entirety, full warning, some of the things that we are definitely going to talk about today are going to reveal plot points that you might not know about yet. So please proceed at your own risk, friends, because we're not holding anything back. We are going all in. Okay. That being said, Cass, before we get to individual characters' costumes, I'm hoping that we can touch ever so briefly on the logistics of creating this series. Because as you all know, what a massive undertaking a production of this type was, it was filmed in Croatia, Spain, Ireland, Iceland, Morocco, Malta. So basically, obsession-level planning was essential. Yes, Clapton has actually said in the press that before each season, prep for the wardrobe department would begin approximately three months before filming, which honestly does not seem like nearly enough time to me. Um, (laughs) You know, making this feat of costuming even more remarkable. Some period films, April, begin prepping a year in advance because there are so many factors to consider. Michelle's team, depending on where they were in the production process, could consist of anywhere between 70 and 100 people. And this includes any number of specialist collaborators like leather and metal workers, which is incredible, armorers making custom armor, jewelers, many of whom worked from the workshops in Belfast, Ireland, where 99% of the costumes were created. Not to mention Weaver's cast, because many of the textiles used were actually original designs woven specifically for one single costume. And they even had their own loom at the Belfast studio, which is pretty incredible, right? (laughs) Also incredible, I have to say, the embroidery, which there is copious amounts of over the course of the series. And some of the most elaborate and gorgeous embroidery was the work of Michelle Carragher. Um, You can do yourself a favor and Google Game of Thrones embroidery and plenty of images as well as Michelle Carragher's website are going to come up. And I'm just going to say prepare to be gobsmacked. And I've also spoken to Michelle Carragher, and she's currently working on a book, which is due to be released next year. And tentatively, she has already agreed to join us to chat about that when it's released. So I'm super excited for that. Yes, absolutely. Michelle, please come join us to chat about your upcoming book. We would absolutely love that. Okay, April, where do we even begin our journey into the costuming of GOT? I know, right? Um, Maybe at the beginning. Um, And I say that because you and I are both very familiar with doing research for the podcast as well as the books that we've written. And I'm sure that journey was no different at all for Michelle Clapton and her team. Absolutely. And Clapton has written that she first immersed herself in research saying, I began studying how people lived in various climates historically. I looked at clothing from cultures around the world over many centuries, Japanese, Flemish, Siberian, Afghan, Iranian, Persian, and Native American, to name a few. When searching for inspiration for armor, I focused on Renaissance, Byzantine, Samurai, Ancient Roman, and Ancient Greek designs. I studied folk culture and tribal mythology. In the end, she says, you know, nothing could look like it came from any one specific historic era. GOT is harder in a way because you have to make it up. And yes, this is a fantasy world that, like you said, April, needs to feel real. And I would say she was pretty successful in that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so so if, if you were thinking, how does this episode about a fantasy world relate to the tangible 
in real life history of fashion and dress? Well, it absolutely does. You know, quite a lot of Clapton's designs were inspired by historic dress from around the world. And from that starting point, she wielded her considerable skill to create this entirely new um, aesthetic for each land or culture that was featured in this series. And there are some clues in the books, um, which for any of our listeners out there who might not know Game of Thrones is actually based on a series of books called A Song of Fire and Ice by George R.R. R. Martin. And in the books, Martin does give some description of certain things like color palettes and the sigils of each house or ruling family, but largely Clapton was responsible for developing Martin's limited textual references into this entire aesthetic vocabulary. And just a side note here, April, you mentioned the term sigil. Um, by that, we mean symbol or emblem. Officially, the definition of a sigil is an inscribed or painted symbol considered to have magical power, a seal, or a sign or symbol. And these sigils are omnipresent in the costuming of Game of Thrones characters. You're going to hear us use that term a lot throughout this episode. They're particularly prevalent in the ones who are invested in the power struggle for the Iron Throne. As you know, there are nine main ruling family histories woven into the series, each with their own style vernacular. Yes, and perhaps we should do a quick rundown of the symbols or and color palettes of some of the major houses. You know, quickly and efficiently speaking, here we go. The North, color palettes are brown, largely, but the ruling Stark family also incorporates blue. And this is because Clapton discovered that the dogwood tree can produce natural blue dye stuffs from its bark. And so she incorporated a clear light blue into the Stark characters' wardrobes as they lived in a heavily forested region. The family sigil is the wolf. The Lannisters, house sigil is the lion, often rendered in gold on a ground of red. A well-established house from the south, the warmer color palette for the Lannister airs more on the side of jewel tones, much like other southern family clans. Uh, the house of Tyrell's sigil is a golden rose on a green field, whereas the sizzling color palette of Dorne was inspired by both Indian and Moroccan sensibilities. Clapton has remarked, quote, I loved designing the costumes worn by the people of Dorne. The Dornish are hot-tempered and brash with a disdain for convention. They embrace a wide spectrum of sexuality, and many have children with their lovers out of wedlock. It is such a radically different culture, it was extremely important that viewers immediately realize that this was entirely separate from the capital. I wanted the Dornish dresses to look barely there, as though they could be worn without underwear and slip off at a moment's notice. <laughs> I mean, seriously, Dorne was one of my favorite regions or lands in the entire series. You could basically just put anything any of them were wearing into my closet, and and, <laughs> and I would be real happy about that. And we will talk about um, Dornish dress a little bit further in detail in a, in a while. Then we have the House of Targaryen uh, needs little introduction to their sigil for anyone who has even seen a single episode of Game of Thrones. It is, of course, the dragon. And one of the main leads of the entire series is, of course, Daenerys, a.k.a. Khaleesi, a.k.a. Danny Targaryen. The color story, which is embedded in Danny's costumes, very much follows her character arc, perhaps more so than any other character over the course of its eight seasons. And like you said about Dorne April, I think we will discuss Khaleesi sartorial journey in more detail when we focus on her specifically. Absolutely. Um, and as one of the main characters, she had a lot of screen time, so she had a ton of costumes to talk about. On average cast, Clapton has said that she was responsible for designing around 
120 costumes per season for the lead characters. And this doesn't even remotely include the secondary characters and extras for whom her assistant designers and other members of her team were responsible. And Clapton says, quote, the whole goal from the start was not to make this a costume drama. It's not velvet dresses and pretty things all the time. When you watch it, you really believe you could be there. These are real people with foibles and they sweat and it's not doctored. It is not sanitized. And Cass, <laughs> given your professional history, I bet you know a whole lot about this. So talk to me about the role of agers and dyers in film and TV costuming. Yeah. And real quick, I just want to say too, when when you mentioned all dressing all of those background characters for every scene, costumers are usually one of the first departments to be on set. So those costumers are probably getting there at 2 or 3 a.m. in the morning on those big days. And they're usually the last, one of the very last departments to leave. Um, so kudos to the hardworking costume department on Game of Thrones. So aging and dying, I am not an age or dyer, but I have done it. It's really an art form. It's a highly specialized skill that people really spend years and years and years honing. Um, my first experience was on Terminator Salvation, which I don't know if you've seen that movie, but you know, <laughs> post-apocalyptic. So it was like, here, here's a shirt. Now rip it to pieces, right? Make it look old and aged. And, you know, so I did. And then it was like, okay, well, now you need to recreate that three more times. So that's kind of the interesting part about aging and dying. And, and what makes it such a skill is that not only are you ripping something to shreds, you're then recreating it over and mm -hmm. over again. And dyeing also is this highly refined art form that's really about getting the color just right. The, all of those vibrant colors we witnessed in Dorne are probably all dyed by uh, the costume department. Um, so it's really integral to creating these worlds visually. And no easy feat. Yeah, and Clapton apparently agrees because she has remarked in interviews, quote, if it takes three days to make a costume, it takes another three days to destroy it and break it. Distressing and aging costumes, it is such an art in itself. You make a costume that's new, and then you have to look at it and look at the character or extra, whatever, and ask, what happened to this person? So we may start by fading it with the sun, and you'd probably start washing it because that breaks the costume down a bit more quickly. We'll do hand stitching and repairing on some because, again, that gives it its character. And then we look at the particular moment in the story and see what happens to it. For instance, if it's burnt, we will work out ways to singe or rub grease into it to give it more life. And I just want to say that aging is very fun. <laughs> <laughs> And I wager that Michelle had at least a team of 10 ager and dyers, probably more for specific, um, you know, episodes, because everything April just mentioned, I said it's fun, but it's also incredibly labor intensive. It's likely that every single costume Michelle made went through the hands of the aging dying team. Aging dying was critical to costuming. The hundred of actors cast in roles where regular bathing just might not be part of their character's <laughs> routine. <laughs> And at one point or another, that pretty much included the vast majority of the roles on Game of Thrones, um, especially the extras playing commoners, soldiers, etc. So the role of the agers was incredibly important on this production. And I just want to point out that the extensive aging and dyeing on each garment would have prevented a lot of them from being able to be washed or even dry cleaned. Yeah. Costumers have more than a few tricks up their sleeves to battle this, but I do love this quote from Clapton. She says, after the actors have worn it a few days in the sun, it gets even better. Nice and ripe. 
<laughs> wow. I can only imagine what <laughs> the wardrobe department smelled like on some of those hot days. Yeah. <laughs> um, and on that note, perhaps the time is also ripe to take a short break for a word from our sponsors. Welcome back. Okay, Cass, is it time that we get into some specific characters? That's why we're here. Yeah, I think it's time. Uh, I have to admit, working on this episode was a little bit intimidating due to the sheer number of characters that appear within this series. I mean, I kept asking myself, who should we focus on? Um, There are so, so many characters that I love, and we're not going to be able to go into detail about each and every one for the sake of time. I mean, it's little things like Clapton saying about the character of Varys. She says, quote, The robes have enormous sleeves that conceal his hands. I like the idea that Varys could gather secrets inside them. And for any of you who might need a little reminder or haven't seen Game of Thrones, Varys was a spy master with constantly shifting allegiances. So Clapton's costumes were very poignant for his particular character. And while we can't dwell on Varys, uh, we will try to include as many of these little bits and baubles of information like this about as many of the characters as we can. So Cass, who shall we begin with? Well, how about some of the ladies we meet in the very first episode? There are so many strong female characters in this saga, which is one of the reasons I love it. So it's really hard to pick one to begin with, but let's go with Sansa Stark. She's particularly interesting because she, like her siblings, really has to grow up quite quickly on the show. Uh, When we meet her, she's a spoiled teenage young woman living with her family at their ancestral home in the north, Winterfell. As a backstory for the Stark women, Clapton actually imagined that to pass the dark, cold evenings of the north, a favorite pastime might be embroidery. So we see quite a lot of embroidery on their garments. And even at one point, we see them all embroidering together, Caitlin Stark sitting embroidering with her two daughters, Sansa, and the youngest daughter of the family, Arya. And Cass, when I say that some of the decisions that were made were so smart and nuanced in terms of character development that you might not necessarily notice them on screen, I'm not kidding. Clapton has said that in this scene, Sansa's embroidery is neat and precise, while that of her younger sisters is, quote, always messy, (laughs) not necessarily due to her younger age, but rather her willful nature. Because it turns out, as we find out later, that she's far more interested in the art of swordplay than the art of embroidery. Sansa, however, was conceptualized to be quite an accomplished seamstress in her own right. Clapton imagined her making all of her own clothes and executing her own embroideries, which is lovely. When we first meet Sansa at Winterfell, she wears the stark blue. However, the shade she wears is a bit lighter than that of her family, which was intentional. It really set her apart in a way. This makes perfect sense also because once she becomes betrothed to Prince Joffrey, her family allegiances become tested. When she moves to King's Landing, her clothing quickly makes an abrupt shift away from those stark blues, and she begins to favor the kimono-esque styles and pink and green color palettes worn by her future mother-in-law, Cersei. Clapton says Sansa even switches up her hairstyle at this juncture to more closely resemble Cersei's long, twisting locks. These costumes are prime examples of the importance of costume as a vital storytelling tool. This goes for any production, of course, but especially in a show like Game of Thrones, 
where they are incredibly important in not only distinguishing worlds from each other, but helping to show a character's story arc. Sansa's costumes, as with all of the characters we will discuss today, relay an incredible amount of essential information to the audience, even if you might not have consciously perceived it. Yeah, for instance, uh, you mentioned that uh, Sansa begins wearing pink, and mauve in particular now becomes a favorite of Sansa's because it's somehow a blend of stark blue with the traditional Lannister red. And this shade is the ground color for her elaborate gown for her nuptials, which is the first garment I'd like to talk about in detail because Clapton has noted that she chose a, quote, gold and mauve shot brocade fabric that was embellished with metal hip pads to make the gown feel slightly armored. But Cass, it's really the embroidery on this piece that is spectacular in its symbolism. Clapton says, the sigilla of the house Lannister the lion was stamped at the back of her neck, suggesting that Sansa was now their property. However, the embroidery on the girdle that crisscrosses her chest and encircles her waist includes direwolves, the sigil of the Starks, as well as fish, which was the sigil of the Tully family from which her mother, Caitlin, comes from. Additionally, we see embroidered dragonflies, a symbol that seems to be unique to Sansa herself, her own invention, which symbolizes her feelings of captivity. You will also see that she frequently wears a dragonfly necklace as well during this period. Cass Clapton designed the jewelry in addition to all of the costumes wow. um, on the show. <laughs> I know, right? No small feat. Um, and, and we must say that Clapton did seven of the eight seasons of Game of Thrones. We should, of course, credit April Fairy's wonderful designs for Game of Thrones season six. And that's when Fairy took over for Clapton when Clapton was taking a small break to design the costumes for the Netflix series The Crown, which I'm sure many of our listeners have also seen. <laughs> But uh, because Clapton designed the preponderance of the seasons, it's really her work that we're focusing on in this episode. But I digress. So let's get back to this jewelry. Clapton has said that she always designed the jewelry with great intention and that the jewelry pieces seen in the series were oftentimes some of the most deeply symbolic items that a character would wear and that rarely, if ever, did she create a piece of jewelry which was not in service to the story arc or character development. So basically, the jewelry was just never gratuitous embellishment or ornamentation. And that makes sense too because if you think about how TV's filmed, you know, you're seeing close-ups a lot on the characters' faces. So you're really going to see a lot of those jewelry um, pieces highlighted on the screen close up. Mm -hmm. And so take, for instance, the necklace that Sansa adopts after she escapes the clutches of the Lannisters. She wears different variations of the same style throughout the show. It's this large ring that's about three inches in diameter. It hits her high on the chest, just below the neck. And through it is threaded this long chain, which dangles well below her hips. It terminates with a long pointed sewing needle at the end. And as Clapton has noted, quote, this is an unbroken circle. It symbolizes strength. This is a symbolic statement indicating that Sansa is ready to fight. It's also a reference to her sister, Arya, who carries a sword called Needle. Likewise, on Sansa's white wedding coat for her marriage to Ramsay Bolton, the front closures feature two clasps from which dangle two large metal fish, and this was a nod to the sigil of her mother's family, the Tullys. So the last and final ensemble of Sansa's that I'd like to speak about, Cass, is another ginormous spoiler alert. 
<laughs> so we will issue this once again. Fair warning, friends. Uh, I'd like to talk about her coronation ensemble from the final episode of all of Game of Thrones. You know, Sansa has now proved herself one of the most resilient characters in the entire series. You know, she's often abused as a female pawn by the men in her life, husbands or otherwise. But in the end, she outlasts them all and is crowned Queen of the North. Yes, and her ensemble really is a metaphor for her journey. Clapton states, I have given her a costume that featured imagery referencing the events of her life and honoring family and friends whom she had loved or had offered her guidance along the way. Although Sansa's coronation gown was blackish gray, Clapton actually used the exact same textile as the one she used in white for Marjorie Tyrell's wedding to King Joffrey, who was formerly Sansa's betrothed. Are you with me here? (laughs) (laughs) Despite their common fiancé, Marjorie was kind of Sansa in King's Landing when no one else was. So using this textile again was really a nod to the shared experience and their friendship. The style of skirt seen on Sansa's coronation gown was one seen earlier in the series worn by her mother, Caitlin Stark. And that's not the only familial connection referenced in the silhouette of this ensemble. The cloak she wears is asymmetrical, similar to the one that her sister Arya wears in the final season. And the embellishment on Sansa's cloak is laden with meaning. One shoulder and sort of pseudo-sleeve of the cloak is embroidered with fish scales, again, a reference to her mother, who was murdered during the slaughter of the Red Wedding earlier in the series. Worst I know. episode of my life. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you got you have to watch it. Don't not watch it. You have to watch it because it's a pivotal point in this story. So back to the cloak. Uh, descending from that same side, just below the fish scales, the cloak also features a motif of beaded and embroidered red leaves, which Clapton says were, quote, inspired by Winterfell's crimson-leaved weirwood trees. On the other shoulder of the cloak, we see a beaded and embroidered head of a direwolf, and it emerges from the fur trimming at the neck of the cloak. This is a tribute to Lady Sansa's direwolf, who was killed by Cersei in the first season. And the direwolf motif appears again in this ensemble, this time a tribute to her brother Rob, the former king of the North. At the Red Wedding, where he too was murdered, he wore a clasp with a motif with the heads of two direwolves supporting each other. Clapton smartly reused the same motif in Sansa's coronation crown. And we're not done quite yet. Uh, beneath the cloak and over her gown, Sansa wears a metal corset. The sculpted motifs cut out of the metal corset are kind of sinuous, and they reference the branches, again, of this weirwood tree. And while Sansa has now forsaken the metal ring of her favorite necklace, the long chain culminating with the needle at the end, now hangs from her waist, which is yet another reference to her absent sister, Arya, who has fled the capital for parts unknown. And my question is, will we see an entire series that is just about Arya? I hope so. I hope so, (laughs) so much. (laughs) Sansa had many rivals, if not outright enemies, to defeat to get to this point, of course. Perhaps none so formidable than Cersei Lannister. Married to King Robert Baratheon, Cersei was also the mother to the heir of the throne, Prince Joffrey, along with her two other younger children, Tommen and Marcella. The latter was sent to live in Dorne at the age of nine to be more or less raised by the family of the Dornish prince, Tristane, to whom she was promised as a future bride. That Cersei's three children 
are not her husband's, <laughs> the king, and instead the result of this ongoing incestuous relationship with her twin brother, Jamie, isn't exactly common knowledge to everyone else in the show. We, we learn quite early on. <laughs> but right. in the circles that are aware or suspect, this casts the entire right of succession to the throne into question. Cersei's deception in terms of the paternity of her children would be far from her last. Uh-huh. And oh, over the course of the series, she really emerges as this protagonist villainess par excellence. Um, however, this wasn't always necessarily the case. When we first meet Cersei as Robert's queen, she had very little agency of her own. And for one of her very early ensembles, Clapton designed a pale blue-green dress, which was embroidered with bird motifs. She says, quote, I love the idea that she sees herself as a caged bird. And just to drive this point home, Cass, this blue-green shade for the dress was also used in the wall coverings of Cersei's bedroom as if she was, you know, little more than decoration or ornamentation for the palace itself. And oh, how quickly things would change. I actually think that we could, I personally think she's like one of the worst, greatest villains of TV history. (laughs) (laughs) So after King Robert dies of wounds sustained while hunting, Cersei is now the queen mother, meaning she's the mother to the king. And as inexperienced as teenage Joffrey still is, Cersei holds considerable sway over him and her own political ambitions quickly reveal themselves, not only in her actions, but also in her costumes, the changes in her costumes. For instance, she now adopts the Lannister family red and increasingly wears the family's lion sigil. April, you noted earlier in the context of Sansa that Cersei's gowns were kimono-esque, and Clapton has noted this as a reference as inspiration for these designs. She also looked to the silhouettes of the Middle Ages as inspiration for much of Cersei's style. Yes, and that medieval inspiration is quite evident in the long trailing sleeves that Cersei is so fond of. The dress that she wears to Prince Joffrey's wedding to Marjorie Tyrell is a wonderful example of Clapton's skill at layering a lot of these aesthetic references. A gold ground with a subtle gold foliate motif, the dress features Cersei's signature hanging sleeves, golden embroidered lions at the shoulders, and a highly unusual neckline. It's a sort of a funnel neckline that reveals the decolletage and stands away from the shoulders quite stiff. Earlier in the season, we had seen Marjorie wear a more extreme version of this same funnel neckline and get this cast. This is one of my favorite things. Clapton has said that this funnel neckline was actually inspired by a dress by Alexander McQueen, (laughs) one that he designed for Bjork for her 2004 music video, Who Is It? I love that. I know. (laughs) And also not the only appearance contemporary fashion would make in this series. Daenerys actually wears a V&A dress in one of the episodes that takes place in Slaver's Bay. Clapton found it in a shop in Dubrovnik where they were filming. The style was remarkably similar to the ones the costume team had designed for the female slaves in some of the shots. So she bought it, altered it a bit, and it became one of Danny's costumes. I mean, who knew that Vionne would end up on screen in Game of Thrones, which is, again, fun. Alexander McQueen, Madeline Vionne. Um, and another fun fact, cast: 
the rivalry between the soon-to-be Queen Marjorie and the Queen Mother Circe was not only political. If you pay really close attention, they have a bit of a sartorial battle as well. You know, they're always trying to one-up each other in terms of their outfits. And Clapton says, quote, Marjorie's in great competition with Circe, which plays out in season three. It's almost like a fashion fight between them, which is quite funny. (laughs) Of course, how that rivalry between Circe and Marjorie actually played out was far from humorous. And a single fell swoop, Circe rid herself of many, if not most of her political enemies by plotting a massive explosion. She orchestrates the setting off of the highly flammable substance wildfire beneath the temple courtroom, instantly killing the hundreds, including... Queen Marjorie, who had gathered to watch Cersei go on trial. For Cersei's last remaining heir, the young King Tommen, who had succeeded his brother Joffrey, things had gone too far, and he ends up taking his own life by throwing himself out of a tower. This now made Cersei next in line for the throne. Cersei's coronation look in season six is a direct reflection of her bloodthirsty rise to power. Gone is the Cersei of yore in jade blues and ruby reds. For nearly the entire rest of the series, she wears black, of course, being the color of death. Also gone is her long flowing hair and her long trailing sleeves. Far from the flowing gowns of a caged bird, Cersei's garments now take on this severe, almost sharp-edged tailoring, and seduction is no longer necessary as a means to an end because she has now claimed the power that she so desperately desired. She just has to keep it. And her ruthless rule over the Seven Kingdoms is really marked in this shift to a a more militaristic look that she wears. She now frequently wears armored shoulder plates, chains, metal studs, and also textiles that uh, resemble or reference chainmail. Including for her coronation look you just referenced, April, her long black dress with fitted wrist-length sleeves is accessorized with these metal epaulets that are incised with the Lannister lion. Clapton says that the chain draped across her chest symbolizes that she is, quote, physically and emotionally closed off. And this isn't even the most remarkable part of this ensemble. On screen, her black dress appears to have this all-over pattern of dots or flowers. However, in reality, the dots themselves are cutouts or voids in the leather, which was used for her overdress. So the whole overdress was laser cut and incised with these leaf-like shapes, which exposed the silk brocade underdress. This dress is a remarkable technical feat. Go back and watch it for sure. Clapton says this is the favorite of all the costumes she designed for the entire series. Yeah, when you see it up close, like details of it, it's pretty mind-blowing. Likewise, also mind-blowing, the ensemble Circe wears to a council meeting where she meets Daenerys for the first time, also a feat of artistic and technical mastery. Over a long-sleeve underdress, which gives the effect of chainmail, she wears a cap-sleeve overcoat, which is open at the front, but it's the back of this overcoat, which is the technical masterpiece. Clapton and her team lined the back of the felt coat with patent leather, and then they created this series of graduating slashes. And when they twisted the slashes down and opened them, uh, it revealed the patent leather on the reverse and the chainmail-esque textile below. And overall, this effect is like an exoskeleton or vertebrae, kind of. Clapton says this was, quote, to indicate what a cold-blooded character she has become. I wanted her to look like an insect. 
At the same time, we do glimpse flashes of humanity remaining in Cersei. When she learns she is once again pregnant, for instance, with, of course, her brother, Jamie's child, Clapton gives a nod to her maternal nature by covering the abdomen of many of her dresses with shielding metal studs. She also wears a long necklace with a lion medallion, which hits below her navel in many of the scenes where she is known to be pregnant. Assumedly, she finds protective solace in her family's sigil. We're going to take a short sponsor break here, but when we come back, we will turn our attention to another mother, the mother of dragons. Welcome back. As many of you, I am very excited to talk about Daenerys's wardrobe. We may also refer to her here as Khaleesi as well, as this was her honorific as the queen of the nomadic Dothraki people of Essos. When we first meet Danny, she is not yet wed to the lord of the Dothraki people called Drogo, but she is being offered up to Drogo by her brother Viserys in exchange for the allegiance of Drogo's Dothraki army. Yes, as Targaryens, Viserys has a claim on the Iron Throne. His father Aerys Targaryen had ruled the Seven Kingdoms as king until he went mad and was killed by Cersei's twin brother, lover, baby daddy, (laughs) Jaime Lannister. who becomes one of my favorite characters, I must say. Um, Cersei then became queen by her marriage to the next in line for the throne, Robert Baratheon, as we mentioned earlier. But the Targaryens still have this legitimate claim, should they be able to muster an army to reclaim the throne. And this is Viserys' entire aim, and of course, using his sister as bait. It's interesting, Cass, that one of the great leitmotifs of the entire series is feminine power. Much like when we see Cersei and she conceptualizes herself as a caged bird, Daenerys is also at the mercy when we first meet her of the dominating male presence in her life, her brother. Yet both of these characters go on to throw off the shackles of patriarchal subjugation and they remake the world as they see fit, whether that be for better or worse. But Danny's status as a sexual object is clearly evidenced in the costumes that she wears in the in the initial episodes of Game of Thrones. We first see her in this barely there backless gown, similar to the ones worn by brothel prostitutes in King's Landing. Clapton has remarked in the past that she imagined Viserys remembering seeing this style when he was young, growing up in the capital, and then he dressed his sister accordingly. I love how well thought out every single costume is. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> For presentation to Drogo, Danny wears an entirely see-through shift, intentionally so. Basically, you know, the goods are on full display, so to speak. The wardrobe team actually nicknamed this the quote-unquote viewing dress for obvious reasons. <laughs> Her only adornment are these two dragon clasps, which hold the fabric together at each shoulder. So from the very first episode, we're already associating Danny with this dragon iconography. Again, the dragon motif is used on the clasps between her breasts, which holds together this draped lilac gray dress she wears to wed Drogo. Clapton says she meant for the dress to unwrap Daenerys like a gift offered up to the Dothraki warlord. Only after their bond is cemented and consummated does Danny adopt Dothraki style. As a nomadic tribe of horse people in this hot and arid landscape, leather and suede figure prevalently into their wardrobes. And Clapton says, quote, researching how they might dress, I studied African and Native American garb, as well as clothing and accessories worn by real world nomadic tribes that travel on horseback. For example, the Dothraki's boots were based on those that have been 
worn by the horsemen of Afghanistan for centuries. Yeah, and that's another craft that they're employing in this costume department. Cobblers. <laughs> so now Khaleesi. Daenerys adopts pants for riding astride and even attempts to put her own spin on Dothraki style when she buys a woven and braided top at the market in Vase Dothrak, the one and only Dothraki city. Interestingly enough, the overall look of the top resembles dragon scales from afar, and these references to dragons only become more and more frequent, especially after the fossilized dragon eggs she received as a wedding gift. They hatch, and she becomes mother to the three dragon hatchlings. Khal Drogo dies from an infected wound he received. <laughs> I know, so sad. Um, defending his wife's honor, which makes it even sadder, and the vast majority of her Dothraki followers abandon Khaleesi in the middle of the night, leaving only a few loyal followers under her rule. She now begins this journey Throughout the lands of Essos, garnering followers who are basically in awe of her growing dragons and her legitimate claim to the Iron Throne. At each stop along the way, she assimilates by adapting and also adopting the customs of clothing of each locale she encounters, and she espouses and fights for the freedom of the many, many enslaved people all throughout Essos. By the time Khaleesi arrives in Slaver's Bay, she has shed her Dothraki suede and leathers entirely, and she arrives in this gorgeous blue overdress worn over a white pleated skirt. The blue of the overdress reflects her continued allegiance to her Dothraki followers as it's their sacred color, but what makes this overdress extra special is the dragon scale embroidery designed by, of course, Michelle Carragher, who adapted this North American smocking stitch to give the scale-like effect, and over this she has layered additional scale embroidery and metallic pewter thread. And Cass, if you head over to Michelle Carragher's website, and we will put the link in the show description, she actually provides details about how to do this dragon scale puckering technique, complete with downloadable instructions, which is incredibly generous of her. And speaking of this particular costume, the dragon motif is underscored even further by Khaleesi's jewelry, because around her neck, she wears a chain with two dragon talons at either end. And Clapton has noted that the necklace has no clasp or closure, so the weight of the two metal talons are counterbalanced in order for the necklace to stay on the body. I mean, come on. Attention to craftsmanship here much? I mean, it's, it's all these, like, mind-boggling details that you just don't know about, like, when you first see it on screen. Yeah, and Khaleesi also wears some pretty spectacular dragon jewelry when she reaches Marine. Fully fashioned silver dragons wrap her neck. They are very elaborate pieces, which stand in contrast to her more refined dresses of pale pink, white, and gray, which drape over her shoulders like a cape. These are perhaps some of the most ladylike costumes Daenerys wears. They're very demure with this kind of scoop neckline featuring a V-notch, which terminates just above her breasts. The silhouette is riffed on for quite some time, really until she crosses the sea to Westeros. And once in Westeros, Danny adopts a uniform of sorts. She, she changes clothing many, many times to be certain, but the overall silhouette stays pretty much the same once she's in Westeros. Much like Cersei, it becomes more militaristic in its inspiration. I mean, you know, she is there to wage a war, Cass, right? So right. that makes sense. 
So her so-called uniform consists of coats made of various and different textiles, but they're always in more or less the same cut that has these kind of fashion-sculpted shoulder epaulets and a a really nipped waist. Uh, And the nipped waist is made to look even smaller by these wide shoulders and a full skirt um, on these coats. And sometimes uh, the full skirt is cut away at the front to reveal a pleated skirt beneath. And the color palette of her wardrobe suddenly changes quite dramatically. She no longer wears the pale hues of her youth or even Dothraki sacred blue. The violent implications of her Westeros expedition sees her wardrobe switch largely to dark gray, black, and maroon, with one notable exception, and that is the astounding white fur coat she wears to ride her dragons to rescue the man she loves, Jon Snow. Hands down, one of my favorite costumes from the entire series. It's absolutely incredible. Yeah. When um, I, I think I texted you and I was like, hey, what are your, some of your favorite things? Which like, What should we focus on? You were like, we have to do the white fur coat. I'm like, oh, right. yeah. Already on it. (laughs) And apparently we were not alone in these sentiments because Clapton has actually said in an interview that when Amelia Clark, who of course played Danny, when she appeared on set wearing this coat, apparently the whole crew completely lost their minds. They just went wild for it. And we have to remember that this crew had seen some pretty spectacular costumes over over the years for certain. And Clapton also says that she chose to do a departure into white from the blacks and the grays and the reds that she had been wearing because it symbolized the purity of her intentions and her feelings for Jon Snow. Yes, and apparently this coat took months to develop. It follows the same silhouettes as the other coats that she wears in Westeros, but it's created from strips of white fur mounted to a canvas backing. The strips run in many different directions, creating some really nice movement and visual interest. And the back of the coat is incredibly complex with a center portion of the strips cut and placed to mimic a dragon's spine. To all of this, varying lengths of fur pile was required to create the look, depending on where the strips were placed on the coat. Not to mention the fact that for this particular incarnation, Clapton wanted to make the skirt fly behind Danny as she rides the dragon to save John. So that meant that many, many passes at making the pattern were necessary before they could figure out how to get the back of the coat to kind of float aloft in the wind. And I said just a second ago, particular incarnation, because Cass, there are actually three different variants of this coat. The one she wears to rescue John, which we have just been talking about. Another version she wears later foreshadows the death and destruction imminently at hand as it has bits of the white fur strips subtly down the edges dyed red as if blood were barely seeping out of the coat seams. And then the third version is rendered actually in not white fur, but white suede. And the fur is on the inside of the coat, on the interior, and that has been dyed entirely red. So here and there at the seams of the white suede, we see the red fur peeking out through the seams. And this last version, the white suede one, actually also has two heavy draped bows which hang from the cuffs as if blood just can't help but like pour out the sleeves of her coat. <laughs> I wow. <know>. <laughs> <laughs> So without fail, once in Westeros, Daenerys almost always accessorizes these coats with this militaristic silver crossbody chain of dragon vertebrae that connects at the shoulder with three dragon heads, one for each of her dragons, Viserion, Rhaegal, and Drogon. And guess what, Cass? You can get your very own. 
dragon because I've really been wanting one of those. <laughs> I know that I couldn't fit one in my apartment, but just saying. <laughs> uh, no, not dragon. But you can get your very own silver cross body chain exactly like the one Khaleesi wears. And this came as a huge surprise to me, perhaps more so than anything else I learned um, doing all this research. Clafton partnered with a jewelry company based in the UK known as Eunice and Eliza to do an entire line of jewelry based on her designs for Game of Thrones. And some of these pieces are more or less exactly as seen as worn by Daenerys on screen. And others are kind of more riffs on this dragon theme. But one of the replica pieces is actually this crossbody dragon chain, and it's done in solid silver, just under a pound and a half of solid silver. So that's about like 640 grams for those of you who are on metric. And if you'd like to check out Clapton's line of Game of Thrones jewelry, you can head over to May London, which is M-E-Y dot London. And on that site, there are necklaces, earrings, bracelets, rings, et cetera. It's, it's very, very cool. I definitely want some dragon earrings. Hmm. All right. Well, Cass, we have covered the wardrobes of three of the leading ladies of Game of Thrones, only three of the leading ladies of Game of Thrones, I should say. And initially, I thought this was just going to be a single episode, but as I got to working, I realized that there is no way we could do this topic justice in under an hour or even just barely over an hour. So I am happy to report that next week, we will pick back up with part two because we have lots more characters to cover. We certainly do. And until then, dress listeners, we hope you consider wrapping up in something warm for winter next time you get dressed. Please join us on Thursday for our mini-sodes where we answer your listener questions and or give you the latest updates on the goings in the field of fashion history. If you'd like to write to us with a question for a future fashion history mystery, you can always do so by emailing us at dressed at iheartmedia.com. We love to hear from you. You can also direct message us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, which is also our Twitter handle. And you can always follow us on Facebook at dressed podcast without the underscore. Thank you, as always, to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each week. Also, entirely unrelated to the pod, a huge thank you to all of the essential workers, doctors, nurses, government officials, food service workers, everyone who's out there working on overdrive right now to keep us all safe and sound in this topsy-turvy world we are all finding ourselves in suddenly. Please, everyone, stay home, be safe and well, and we will catch you on Thursday. Yes, thank you to everybody. Catch you soon. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, you can check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.